Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Evolution and Adaptation, written by Thomas Hunt Morgan and published in 1908. This book looks at the adaptive features of species across the animal kingdom. Animals are all designed to do different things, and this book looks at some of the amazing things that they do. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. I am grateful that you have chosen this podcast to assist with your sleep. It is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Special thanks to the listeners who left lovely reviews for me this week. Thank you to Yoteleria for your lovely iTunes review. Katrina White, thank you for your lovely message through the website. I'm so glad the podcast has been helping you. To Podbean listeners Jono and Ava May, thank you for your lovely messages. Thank you also to Lynn Jolly for your lovely comment on Instagram. If you found the podcast helpful, it would be awesome if you could leave a review, as it really helps me reach more people that need a good night's rest. You can also say hello at boyyoutosleep.com, where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, at boyyoutosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Evolution and Adaptation by Thomas Hunt Morgan Preface The adaptation of animals and plants to the conditions under which they live has always excited the interest and also the imagination of philosophers and scientists. For this relation between the organism and its environment is one of the most characteristic features of living things. The question at once suggests itself, how such a relation been brought about? Is it due to something inherent in the living matter itself? Or is it something that has been, as it were, superimposed upon it. An example may make my meaning clearer. No one will suppose that there is anything inherent in iron and other metals that would cause them to produce an engine if left to themselves. The particular arrangement of the pieces has been superimposed upon the metals so that they now fulfil a purpose or use. Have the materials of which organisms are composed been given a definite arrangement, so that they fulfil the purpose of maintaining the existence of the organism? And if so, 
How has this been accomplished? It is the object of the following pages to discuss this question in all its bearings and to give as far as possible an idea of the present state of biological thought concerning the problem. I trust that the reader will not be disappointed if he or she finds in the sequel that many of the most fundamental questions in regard to adaptation are still unsettled. In attempting to state the problem as clearly as possible, I fear that it may appear that at times I have taken sides, when I should only have been justified in stating the different aspects of the question but this will do little harm provided the issue has been sharply drawn. In some quarters, speculation concerning the origin of the adaptation of living things is frowned upon, but I have failed to observe that the critics themselves refrain entirely from theorizing. They shut one door only to open another, which also leads out into the dark. To deny the right to speculative thought would be to deny the right to use of one of the best tools of research. Yet it must be admitted that all speculation is not equally valuable. The advance of science in the last hundred years has shown that the kind of speculation that has real worth is that which leads the way to further research and possible discovery. Speculation that leads to this end must be recognised as legitimate. It becomes useless when it deals with problems that cannot be put to the actual test of observation or experiment it is in the spirit that I have approached the topics discussed in the following pages. The unsophisticated man believes that all other animals exist to minister his welfare, and from this point of view, their adaptations are thought of solely in their relation to himself. A step in advance was taken when the idea was conceived, that adaptations are for the good of the organisms themselves. It seemed a further advance when the conclusion was reached that the origin of adaptations could be accounted for as the result of the benefit that they conferred on their possessor. This view was the outcome of the acceptation of the theory of evolution combined with Darwin's theory of natural selection. It is the view held by most biologists at the present time, but I venture to prophesy that if anyone will undertake to question modern zoologists and botanists concerning their relation to the Darwinian theory, he will find that while professing in a general way to hold his theory, most biologists have many reservations and doubts 
which they either keep to themselves or at any rate, do not allow to interfere either with their teaching of the Darwinian doctrine or with the applications that they make of it in their writings. The claim of the opponents of the theory that Darwinism has become a dogma contains more truth than the nominal followers of this school find pleasant to hear. But let us not, therefore, too hastily conclude that Darwin's theory is without value in relation to one side of the problem of adaptation. For while we can profitably reject, as I believe, much of the theory of natural selection, and more especially the idea that adaptations have arisen because of their usefulness, yet the fact that living things must be adapted more or less well to their environment in order to remain in existence may, after all, account for the widespread occurrence of adaptation in animals and plants. It is this point of view that will be developed in the following pages. I am fully aware of the danger in attempting to cover so wide a field as that of evolution and adaptation, and I cannot hope to escape the criticism that is certain to be directed against a specialist who ventures nowadays beyond the immediate field of his own researches. Yet in my own defence, I may state that the whole point of view underlying the position here taken is the immediate outcome of my work on regeneration. One of the general questions that I have always kept before me in my study of regenerative phenomena is how such a useful acquirement as the power to replace lost parts has arisen and whether the Darwinian hypothesis is adequate to explain the results. The conclusion that I have reached is that the theory is entirely inadequate to account for the origin of the power to regenerate, and it seemed to me, therefore, desirable to re-examine the whole question of adaptation, for might it not prove true here, also, that the theory of natural selection was inapplicable. This was my starting point, the results of my examination are given in the following pages. Chapter 1. The Problem of Adaptation Between an organism and its environment, there takes place a constant interchange of energy and of material. This is, in general, also true for all bodies, whether living or lifeless. But in the living organism, this relation is a peculiar one. First, because the plant or the animal is so constructed that it is suited to a particular set of physical conditions. And second, 
because it may so respond to a change in the outer world that it further adjusts itself to changing conditions, i.e., the response may be of such a kind that it better ensures the existence of the individual or of the race. The two ideas contained in the foregoing statement cover, in a general way, what we mean by the adaptation of living things. The following examples will serve to illustrate some of the very diverse phenomena that are generally included under this head. Structural Adaptations The most striking cases of adaptations are those in which are special, in the sense of an unusual relation exists between the individual and its surroundings. For example, the foreleg of the mole is admirably suited for digging underground. A similar modification is found in an entirely different group of the animal kingdom, namely in the mole cricket, in which the first legs are also well suited. By their use, the mole cricket makes a burrow near the surface of the ground, similar to, but of course much smaller than, that made by the mole. In both of these cases, the adaptation is more obvious, because while the leg of the mole is formed on the same general plan as that of the other vertebrates, and the leg of the mole cricket has the same fundamental structure as that of other insects, yet in both cases the details of structure and the general proportions have been so altered that the leg is fitted for entirely different purposes from to which the legs of other vertebrates and of other insects are put. The wing of the bat is another excellent case of special adaptation. It is a modified forelimb having a strong membrane stretched between the fingers which are generally elongated. Here we find a structure, which in other mammals is used as an organ for supporting the body, and for progression on the ground, changed into one for flying in the air. The tails of mammals show a number of different adaptations. The tail is prehensile in some of the monkeys, and not only can the monkey direct its tail towards a branch in order to grasp it, but the tail can be wrapped around the branch and hold on so firmly that the monkey can swing freely, hanging by its tail alone. The animal has thus a sort of fifth hand, one as it were in the middle line of the body which can be used as a hold fast, while the fingered hands are put to other uses. In the squirrels, the bushy tail serves as a protection during the winter for those parts of the body not so thickly covered by hair. 
The tail of the horse is used to brush flies away that settle on the hind parts of the body. In other mammals, the dog, the cat and the rat, for example, the tail is of less obvious use, although the suggestion has been made that it may serve as a sort of rudder when the animal is running rapidly. In several other cases, as in the rabbit and in the higher apes, the tail is very short and is of no apparent use, and in man it has completely disappeared. A peculiar case of adaptation is the so-called basket on the third pair of the legs of the worker honeybee. A depression of the outer surface of the tibia is arched over by stiff hairs, the pollen collected from the stamens of the flowers is stowed away in this receptacle by means of the other pairs of legs. The structure is unique and is not found in any other insects except the bees. It is, moreover, present only in the worker bees and is absent in the queen and the males. The preceding cases in which the adapted parts are used for the ordinary purposes of life of the individual are not essentially different from the cases in which the organ is used to protect the animal from its enemies. The bad taste of certain insects is supposed to protect them from being eaten by birds Cases like this of passive protection grade off in turn into those in which, by some reflex or voluntary act, the animal protects itself. The bad-smelling horns of the caterpillar of the black swallow-tailed butterfly are thrust out when the animal is touched, and it is believed that they serve to protect the caterpillar from attack. The photid secretion of the glands of the skunk is believed to serve as a protection to the animal, although the presence of the nauseous odour may lead finally to the extermination of the skunk by man. The sting of bees and of wasps serves to protect the individual from attack. The sting was originally an ovipositor and used in laying eggs. It has secondarily been changed into an organ of offence. The special instincts and reflex acts furnish a striking group of adaptations. The building of the spider's web is one of the most remarkable cases of this kind. The construction of the web cannot be the result of imitation, since in many instances the young are born in the spring of the year following the death of the parents. Each species of spider has its own type of web, and each web has a characteristic, a form, as has the spider itself. It is also important to find that a certain type of web 
may be characteristic of an entire family of spiders, since, in many cases, the web is the means of securing the insects used for food. It fulfills a purpose necessary for the welfare of the spider. The making of the nests by birds appears to be also in large part an instinctive act, although some writers are inclined to think that memory of the nest in which the young birds lived plays a part of their actions, and imitation of the old birds at the time of nest-building may, perhaps also enter into the results. It has been stated that the first nest built by young birds is less perfect than that built by older birds, but this may be due to the birds learning something themselves in building their nests, i.e. to the perfecting of the instinct in the individual that makes use of it. In any case, much remains that must be purely instinctive. The construction of the comb by bees appears to be largely, perhaps entirely, an instinctive act. That this is the case was shown by isolating young workers as soon as they emerged from the cell, and before they could have had any experience in seeing comb built. When given some wax, they set to work to make a comb, and made the characteristic six-sided structures, like those made by the bees in a hive. The formation of so remarkable a structure as the comb is worthy of admiration, for with the greatest economy of material, a most perfect storeroom for the preservation of the honey is secured. This adaptation appears almost in the nature of foresight, for the store of honey is used not only to feed the young, but may be drawn on by the bees themselves in time of need. It is true that a comparison with other kinds of bees make it probable that the comb was first made for the eggs and larvae, and only later became used as a storehouse. But so far as its form is concerned, there is the same economy of constructive materials here in either case. The behaviour of young birds, more especially those that take care of themselves from the moment they leave the egg, furnishes a number of cases of instincts that are protective. If, for example, a flock of young pheasants is suddenly disturbed, the birds at once squat down on the ground and remain perfectly quiet until the danger has passed. Their resemblance to the ground is so perfect that they are almost invisible so long as they remain quiet. If instead of remaining still, they were to attempt to run away when disturbed, they would be so much more easily seen. Certain solitary wasps have the habit of stinging caterpillars and spiders, 
and dragging them to their nests, where they are stored away for the future use of the young that hatch from the eggs laid by the wasp on the body of the prey. As a result of the sting which the wasp administers to the caterpillar, the latter is paralyzed and cannot escape from the hole in which it is stored, where it serves as food for the young wasp that emerges from the egg. It was originally claimed by Forel that the wasp stings the caterpillar in such a way that the central nervous system is always pierced, and many subsequent naturalists have marvelled at the perfection of such a wonderful instinct. But the recent results of the Peckhams have made it clear that the act of the wasp is not carried out with the precision previously supposed, although it is true that the wasp pierces the caterpillar on the lower surface where the ventral chain of ganglia lies. The habit of this wasp is not very dissimilar from that shown by many other kinds of wasps that sting their captive in order to quiet it. We need not imagine in this case that the act carries with it consciousness that the caterpillar, quieted in this way, will be unable to escape before the young wasps have hatched. The resemblance in colour of many animals to their natural backgrounds has in recent years excited the interest and imagination of many naturalists. The name of protective coloration has been given to this group of phenomena. The following cases, which have less the appearance of purely imaginative writing, may serve by way of illustration. A striking example is that of the ptarmigan, which has a pure white coat in winter and a brown coat in summer. The white winter plumage renders the animal less conspicuous against the background of the snow, while in summer the plumage is said to closely resemble the lichen-covered ground on which the bird rests. The snowy owl is a northern bird, whose colour is supposed to make it less conspicuous and may serve either way as a protection against enemies, or may allow the owl to approach its prey unseen. It should not pass unnoticed, however, that there are white birds in other parts of the world, where their white colour cannot be of any use to them as protection. The white cockatoos, for example, are tropical birds, living amongst green foliage, where their colour must make them conspicuous, rather than the reverse. The polar bear is the only member of the family that is white, and while this can scarcely be said to protect it from enemies, because it is improbable that it has anything to fear from the other animals of the ice fields, yet it may be claimed that the colour is an adaptation 
to allow the animal to approach unseen its prey. In the desert, many animals are sand-coloured, as seen, for instance, in the tawny colour of the lion, the giraffe, the antelopes, and of many birds that live on or near the ground. It has been pointed out that in the tropics and temperate zones, there are many greenish and yellowish birds whose colours harmonise with the green and yellow of the trees amongst which they live. But on the other hand, we must not forget that in all climes there are numbers of birds brilliantly coloured, and many of those do not appear to be protected in any special way. The tanagers, hummingbirds, parrots, Chinese pheasants, birds of paradise, etc., are extremely conspicuous, and so far as we can see, they must be much exposed on account of the colour of their plumage. Whether, therefore, we are justified in picking out certain cases as examples of adaptation, because of an agreement in colour between the organism and its surroundings, and in neglecting all others is, as has already been said, a point to be further examined. Not only mammals and birds have many cases of protective coloration been described by writers dealing with this subject, but in nearly every group of the animal kingdom, similar cases have been recognised. The green and brown colour of lizards may protect them. The green colour of many frogs is supposed to conceal them as they sit amongst the plants on the edge of a stream or pond. The grey-brown colour of the toad has been described as a resemblance to the dry ground, while the brilliant green of several tree frogs conceals them very effectively among the leaves. Many fishes are brilliantly coloured, and it has even been suggested that those living amongst corals and sea anemones have acquired their colours as protection, but Darwin states that they appear to him very conspicuous even in their highly coloured environment. Among insects, innumerable cases of adaptive coloration have been described. In fact, this is the favourite group for illustrating the marvels of protective coloration. A few examples will here serve our purpose. The oft-cited case of the butterfly Kalima is apparently a striking instance of protective resemblance. When at rest, the wings are held together at the back, as in nearly all butterflies, so that only undersurface is exposed. This surface has unquestionably close resemblance to a brown leaf. It is said on no less authority than that of Wallace that when this butterfly alights on a bush, it is almost impossible to distinguish between it and a dead leaf. 
the special point in the resemblance to which attention is most often called is the distinct line running obliquely across the wings which looks like the midrib of a leaf. Whether the need of such a close resemblance to the leaf is requisite for the life of this butterfly, we do not know, of course, and so long as we do not have this information, there is danger that the case may prove too much. For if it should turn out that this remarkable case is accidental, the view in regard to the resemblance may be endangered. Amongst caterpillars, there are many cases of remarkable resemblances in colour between the animal and its surrounding. The green colour of many of those forms that remain on the leaves of the food plant during the day will give, even to the most casual observer, the impression that the colour is for the purpose of concealment and that it does serve to conceal the animal, there can be no doubt. But even from the point of view of those who maintain that this colour has been acquired because of its protective value, it must be admitted that the colour is insufficient, because some of these green caterpillars are marvellously armed with an array of spines which are also supposed to be protection against enemies. Equally well protected are the brown and mottled geometrid caterpillars. These have, moreover, the striking and unusual habit of fixing themselves by the posterior pairs of false legs and standing still and rigid in an oblique position on the twigs to which they are affixed. So close is their resemblance to a short twig, that even when their exact position is known, it is very difficult to distinguish them. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to evolution and are feeling a little drowsy. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. I'll be working on bringing you a new episode very soon. Good night.